0: Good morning, I'm Rich Lee, I'm one of the partners here. Obviously, John is not here this morning, he's on travel, so I have the opportunity and the privilege to be here with you. Uh, we're kicking off, we're, we're changing our, our series a little bit. We're going to take a pause on 1 Corinthians, and we're going to step into Advent. Now, some of you are going to be, well, what is Advent? What's that all about? Well, I don't want to disappoint you, I hate to, to dash all your dreams, but Christmas is, is not here yet. Christmas actually starts, when you, th- when you look at the liturgical calendar of the church, it actually starts on Christmas Eve. That's when we start Christmas, and we, we should celebrate Christmas for you know 12 days of Christmas, the song. That's when it happens. But we're in the, in the part of Advent. So there's four Sundays before Christmas. And If you're from uh, another church or, or more liturgical, more like Anglican or, or Catholic or um, Lutheran, they celebrate and focus in on all the liturgical calendar throughout the year. So here at Risen... we want want to focus in on Advent because we want to think about the coming of the Christ child, Emmanuel, and what that brings to us and the hope that that brings to us. Today, on the first Sunday of Advent, we focus on hope. So, how does that tie into the scripture we just read? Some of you are thinking, that Hebrew scripture is strange and it has nothing to do with Christmas. But I I want to say that it has everything to do with Christmas because it has everything to do with the hope of Of God here with us. So as we we talk about Advent, we're going to talk about the coming and the arrival of Christ. Before we get there, though, I know most of you all probably have close to you in your hands or your pockets or something, you probably have one of these. Does anybody remember your first cell phone? And what did that cell phone look like? Mine was a little bitty small Nokia phone where you had to pull the antenna out. Remember those days? and you'd break that antenna, and you'd have to go get a new one, right? And my screen, there was a screen on those little, it was just monochrome, and all you could type into it was the telephone number. That's all you could see. I know you young people are like, how did you watch YouTube? YouTube didn't exist 25 years ago. Does 25 years ago seem like a long time to you since you had that first cell phone? It, it does to me. It seems like a long time ago from that phone to the iPhone that's in my pocket. But about 27 years ago, I married this bride here. That doesn't seem like that long ago to me. The cell phone does. Good. But it seems like just yesterday we had our wedding. See, I think that, that time in our memories becomes compressed or it flexes based on our memories. Here's a couple, couple ways you can kind of think through this. 25 years ago, We had some favorite TV shows. And some of those favorite TV shows came on, what was the prime time? Anybody remember the the day of the week? Not on Friday night. Thursdays, because everybody goes out on Friday. Thursdays at 8 or 9 o'clock, right? So you're watching that show you like, and then you watch one episode, and you really enjoyed it, and then you had to wait a whole week to see the next one. And if you were gone that week, then what did you do? You what? You taped it. You had, to get the, you had to get the book out and figure out how to program your VCR. Remember those days, a little flash, flash, and light? Yeah. That seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? But what about you, for those of you who are, are members or are partners here at Risen, if you were in this room one week ago, John preached on 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and into the 14. To me, that doesn't seem like that long ago, does it? because we had Thanksgiving this week. We had a lot of things going on. So our memories and our experiences, we, sometimes it flexes time in our, in our motions. 25 years ago. Here's another one. I know some of you all um, enjoy a good massage every now and then, a one-hour massage. I know my bride does. So when you're on that massage table, that hour probably gets really short, doesn't it? I'm assuming. You get to the end of it, and you're like, Ugh, has it's already been 60 minutes? Are they cheating me? But what about when you go to another table that's kind of like a chair, a dentist chair? <laughs> What's that hour like? I, was, I would guess it, sound, it feels a lot longer than that hour massage, right? So our memories, our experiences flex time. So what I want to, you to think about is, Every year, Christmas rolls around, and we kind of do the, usually the same things, and we lead up to Christmas, and it's all about the, the trees and the lights and everything, and sometimes we, we lose the emotion of time because it's repetitive. As we walk through the Scripture today, I want you to think about how long how long we waited for the Messiah to come. And We'll get to some dates here in a few minutes. Now, I don't want to dash all your hopes because Christmas is here. We're anticipating Christmas. That's what Advent's all about. You know, it's, we had Thanksgiving on Thursday, so it's legally on Friday. You're, you're allowed to put up your Christmas lights unless you're, unless you're some kind of apostate and you put up beforehand. But the hope that we have in Christmas is, is an interesting idea, isn't it? Some young ones in here, you may be hoping that you may get that cell phone for Christmas. Your parents may let you have it this time, right? But the hope that God talks about in Scripture is a little bit different. I did some research on this, and we, hope is in our, our text here today, and we'll talk about hope. But I did some deep diving into the Greek, and what does God mean about hope? And what I found is the Greek word for hope means hope. That was three years of seminary taught me that. <laughs> it means hope. But we use it differently. It's like we use the word love differently, isn't it? We have different kinds of love. We have different kinds of hope as well. So I, I went to the Oxford Dictionary, because that's where you go to get smart, right? The Oxford Dictionary defines hope. It says it's a noun. It's a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. It's a feeling of expectation. Or it's a verb. It's a verb that you want something to happen or to be the case. It's an aspiration. It's a desire. It's a wish. It's an expectation. I like the expectation part. I think God's getting to that. But it's also an ambition. So as I was thinking about these definitions of hope, I think they fall flat. Because when I took some of God's verse, some of God's truths and I inserted some of those human ideas of hope. It changed, it changed the definition. It changed the purposes. It changed the meaning of the verses. I'll give you a few of them. This idea of human hope. God said, I aspire that there would be light. I hope I can create all the animals. That doesn't work. I desire that you worship me in spirit and truth. I hope you don't murder my aspiration is you don't steal. That doesn't work either. Jesus says, I aspire to be the way, the truth, and the life. Maybe somebody will come to me through the Father. Still not the same, is it? Or Paul says, as we talked about last week, this verse out of 1 Corinthians. Now, faith, wishes, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. That doesn't seem to be the kind of the same thing. Or Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Great verse. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living ambition through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's, kind of, that's not the same either. I think God's talking about something else. So our main point today, if you don't hear anything else besides a cell phone, if you can bring that up. Our main point God reveals the certainty of hope in Emmanuel. God reveals the certainty of hope in Emmanuel. And he establishes this certainty by two divine truths. So this is our roadmap. These two divine truths found in our text today. Number one, God's immutable righteousness guarantees that hope. His immutable righteousness guarantees that hope. Now some of you are like, oh, hold on, just... Hang on, the rod's going to be good. We'll get there. Second, God's eternal power firmly anchors the hope. So he, his immutable righteousness guarantees it, and his power firmly anchors that hope in us. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 6, if you would. If you turn there or scroll there. To get down to these two points, we've got to walk through a couple of verses at, at the beginning. And the writer of Hebrews is setting us up for these teaching points. So verses, verse 13, he starts talking about Abraham. It says when Abraham made a prom, or for God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater, had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, "Surely I will bless you and multiply." And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. What's he talking about here? Some of you already know he's, talk- he's, he's talking about the promises to Abraham, and there were several of them. So I'm just going to walk you through very quickly. Genesis chapter twelve. Abr- Abram, at the time, he's 75 years old. His father has died. He has no children, but he's got, he's got a, a brother, he's got a nephew, and a bunch of, bunch of people live on his land. And God says, Abram, trust me, I need you to go to a different land. Go into this land I'm going I'm to give you. And I'm going to make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the Abrahamic covenant. And they have this discussion. Abram's like, okay, that's great. I'm going to bless, I'm going to be this great, big, huge family, bless all the nations, but i got no kids. How do I do this? And God says, trust me. So a couple of chapters go by, some strange things happen with his, with his uh, nephew, Lot. We get to Genesis 15, and God gives a very similar blessing. But this time he adds, I'm going to take you into a promised land. And this land is going to be for your descendants. And for out of this land will be the blessing to all the nations come. And God, we talked about this earlier in another sermon, that God makes this promise. He cuts this covenant with Abram, and he he relinquishes Abram from any responsibility other than he has faith. He says, if this promise doesn't come true, it's on me, God says. I'm going to do the work. I just need you to follow me in faith and believe me. Now what's interesting, in between these two blessings, these two covenants, between chapter 2 and chapter 15, we see this interesting individual come on the scene named Mechizedek, and he's in the last part of the verse here. Who is this Mechizedek? Well, Abram had come out of rescuing his his nephew Lot out of Sodom. If you go back and read all that, it's it's a very interesting situation. And Abram goes to rescue him. He He takes an army, and he defeats these kings he should not have been able to defeat. He did it because of the God's power. And he's coming up out of that valley after this victory. And this Mkezaldek guy is standing there. And he says, I'm a priest of the, of the most high God. Let me bless you, Abram. And he does. And Abraham gives him a tithe. So he ties to him. So it's, it's solidifying that he is just truly a priest of the one true God. And what's interesting is Mechazeldeck, we've never seen him before. He's never occurred in Scripture. He, we see him again in psalm 102 and then now in hebrews and the writer of hebrews goes on a long discussion in chapter 7 and 8 about who this Mekeseldek is and who he is he describes is he doesn't have a father or a mother he had no beginning and no end and he was the priest of the most high god and he was resembling the son of god this Mekeseldek, his name means he is the king of righteousness. That's what his name means in Hebrew. That's very significant. Names are important. He is the king of righteousness, but he's also described as from a country where he is also a king of Salem, which is shalom, peace. So he is the king of righteousness, and he's the king over the country of peace. He's the king of peace, he's the king of righteousness, and he's the high priest of the Most High God. And the writer of Hebrews says, That's Christ. Jesus is from that same order because Jesus is our King of Peace. He is the King of Righteousness. And He, through the rest of Hebrews, as you read through it, He is the priest that is allowing each one of us to step into the presence of God. But He visits and He makes this, He blesses Abraham and He promises to Abraham, stick to God. Then we go down to Genesis chapter 22. 25 years later, after the promise, we see that Abraham, his name has changed. Abraham has waited decades to realize God's promise to make him a great nation. And his son Isaac is born. He's 100 years old. 25 years after the promise from God. 25 years ago, you held that first ridiculously poor cell phone. It seems like a long time ago. Or it could be a short time. Abraham sees that that this is God's fulfillment. But God says, sacrifice your son. Give him back to me. Give me Isaac. But in the midst of that, God provides another in the place of Abram's son, his precious son. Genesis 22, verse 16 and 17. I'm going to read it for you. We'll bring it up. And this is what God says. By myself I have sworn. So there's, this, there's the, the oath that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. It declares the Lord... Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, so he's talking about Isaac, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring your offspring, shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my this is the finishing of the the covenant with abraham god says your offspring someone will come after you and will bless all the nations because you've been faithful let's go back to hebrews verse 16 so there's the the picture that the writer of hebrews is wanting you to see this promise Verse 16, for people swear about something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So he's saying that God had no need to make this oath. He didn't have to do it. Just his word is good enough. But we live in a world that that sometimes, uh, even though Jesus said, make your yes be yes and your no be no, we give our word for something and then we break our word, don't we? But if we raise our right hand, we put our hand on the Bible, we swear an oath. We do this for all of our public figures. Everyone who comes in the military, they swear an oath. There's a little bit of requirement there. A little bit of, this. I have to do this, I cannot break this oath. God doesn't have to do it, but he does with Abraham. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, he's doing this for you. So raise your right hand with sincerity. We need this because of the fallenness of man. But God, his word is good and true. But he does this as an example, example for us. So this takes us to verse 17, where we pick up our first point. God's immutable righteousness guarantees this hope that we have in him his unchangeable immutable so great word for unchangeable we don't use that word very often if i need to change my oil oil in my truck i don't go to the to the uh, station and say hey can you immute my oil for me no it's just unchangeable but it's a cool word because it speaks to god's character it speaks to the focus on his character and his purpose and his promises based on his unchangeableness of his holiness. So let's read verse 17 together. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, so the promise to Abraham, the promise to us through Christ, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed with an oath. So, this is When he, when he put his hand up, he said, this is going to happen so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. That's good. That's good stuff. So God, with Abraham and the writer Hebrews, is saying God said it's going to happen. He swore an oath. Abraham saw it happen, and we too, and he promises us that through the Messiah, our sins will be forgiven. He will remember our sin no more from the covenant of Jeremiah. It is true. and We can hold fast to that. Let's walk through a little bit of that, what that looks like. Now, what this doesn't mean is it doesn't mean God can't change his mind. We see examples of that all through Scripture. His character doesn't change, but he does change his mind. Think of Moses when, when uh, the, the Israelites were grumbling in the forest, in the wilderness, and, and God said, I'm going to strike them all down. And Moses says, don't do it, God. He changes his mind. He relents. He calls Saul to be the first king, but Saul doesn't carry out the, the kingship as he wanted, and God changes his mind and brings David in. With David, God has to change his mind and forgive him for his sins, and Solomon as well. But he cannot change his character. The character of his plans and his purpose have to be immutable. If they change, if he offers us a promise and then he doesn't fulfill it, then he then he lied. The writer of Hebrews says he can't do that because if he does, he ceases to be God. He cannot change his character. He can't change his nature. He can't change his holiness. If the standard of holiness or righteousness was changeable, then we have no ethical pillar for which to hold ourselves to. We have no standard of what's right and good. We have no standard of badness or sin. It would become all relative at that point. And our society would just it would devolve to might is right. If God could change His character and His holiness and His righteousness, He would cease to be God, and we would have no hope. But He does not lie; He promised Abraham by two unchangeable promises. Therefore, we have a certain guaranteed future, a hope that doesn't disappoint us, as Paul writes in Romans. This should embolden us and encourage us that no matter what is going on, we serve the one true God who will never leave us or forsake us. Look back at verse 18. I want to walk through a couple of words here, which, which hopefully will embolden you this idea of this hope. It says, it's impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge. So that's a picture of the Old Testament, the cities of refuge. If you Basically what happened is if you... Uh, killed somebody by mistake you you committed manslaughter you could go to one of these cities and be protected until the case was adjudicated so he says as we flee to a city's a refuge and, and we flee a lot of times to from things that scare us or things that bother us or things that trouble us we're not killing anybody but there's things that we run from and he's saying run to my city run to me as your refuge and once you're there you might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope. Strong encouragement. That this is not just, I want to be strong, I want to lift a lot of weights. This is a very emphatic word. And behind, the word behind this is so strong, it's almost violent. It's, this is hurricane strength. And this is, the encouragement is comfort. So as you, as you withdraw into this, this refuge, looking for safety, looking for, for a little bit of comfort and peace, when you get in there with God and you walk with Him, this hurricane, hurricane of encouragement begins to surround you and wrap you. And He's saying, "Grab onto that. Hold fast to that." It's so easy for us to hold fast to other things that are in our mind and our thoughts. He's saying, "Grab hold of this. He, adhere strongly to what though? This encouragement? No. What's the next verse or next clause say? Hold fast. Grasp onto. Adhere to strongly." to the hope that is set before you. This is not hope that I aspire or I wish or, or I'm looking for something. I hope it comes true. This is not a verb form of hope. This is a noun. This is the hope that God brings and puts it right in front of you. This is the hope that we have this powerful encouragement from that we can grasp hold of because it's never going to move. It's never going to leave us. Victor Frankel, many of you all know, and if you don't, I'll tell you who he is. He was a, a psychiatrist. He's long passed away, but he wrote a book called "The Man's Search for Meaning," A great book. And in that book he's talking about his experience as being a Jewish man in a Nazi concentration camp. He survived and became a psychiatrist and was trying to figure out, how can I help people? How can I encourage them? How can I give them resilience? And his book beautifully combines faith and reason and science together. And in his book, he says, said, he said experiences in the camp, he, the loss of hope and courage can be a deadly effect on anybody. He contended that when a man loses or no longer possesses a motivation for living, no future to look forward to, he curls up in the corner and he dies. Any attempt that up. Any attempt to restore a man's inner strength in camp, he wrote, had first to succeed in showing him some future goal. In our darkest hours, grasp hold of that powerful hurricane encouragement and know that that hope that God has set before you is a real thing. When you ponder about hope, are you thinking about a hope that depends upon you or someone else's actions or their thoughts or their opinions or should you be fo- focused on the hope that God has set before you to seize onto it rightly? The assured hope from God that is unconditional based upon his unchangeable character. That's the hope I want to grasp hold of in the, in the difficult times. This is a mindset, though. It's a decision of your spirit to decide to trust the immutable, unchangeable one true God, just as Abraham did. That's why the writer Hebrews put that in there. He said, just like Abraham do it, did it, so can you. But what did Abraham have to do? He waited patiently. Now, he didn't do it perfectly in that 25 years. He made some mistakes, but he kept coming back to home base. He kept coming back to what God had promised him. He repented for some of the bad, bad decisions he made. He repented for his doubts, because those are human things. But he came back to the hope of which he can grab a hold of. So God's immutable righteousness guarantees this hope. And in verse nineteen and twenty, I want you to see that God's eternal power firmly anchors that hope. His eternal power firmly anchors that hope. Look at verse nineteen with me. We have this. Here's the first three words in my ESV. Up on the screen, we have this. What is the this? What is the this that He's referring to? Four words before it, the hope from the previous verse. For he says, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this. We have this hope. This is a beautiful verse. What I'd like to do, a little audience participation, I want to read together verse 19 up to the comma. So let's all read it together. We have this As a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. The hope. We have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. This is a very spiritual thing. I truly believe that that God inspired His Word. And I think this verse, this portion of the verse, is beautiful. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. I have this anchor of my soul that is sure and steadfast. How beautiful is that? What does he mean here about sure and steadfast? I mean, yeah, that's, that's some sure, yeah, steadfast, good. But what he's talking about that sure, it's pertaining to your best interests is what this word is talking about. It is sure to be there, but it it is for you, your best interest. It is firm. It is certain. It will be there. Steadfast. It's reliable. It does not disappoint. And it's unshifting over time. God's promises. He says, I will do this. And it is sure. It's steadfast. It's unshifting over time. But he uses the word anchor, and I love this. Because it's a steadfast and sure anchor that's going to hold you when you tap into God's power. Many of us in this room are, uh, in our church has a lot of military here, mostly a navy here. And I remember years ago learning the basics of navigation, how to drop an anchor. And these fishing boats out here have anchors. What do anchors do? What's the purpose of an anchor? Keep them sitting in the same spot, right? Yeah, but think about a 90,000-ton, 1,000-foot aircraft carrier. That takes a little bit of planning to drop that anchor. You gotta, they got to know what kind of ground's underneath it. What is the foundation? What is the, the floor bottom like so that anchor digs in? And they drop a lot of anchor chain, a lot of weight out there to keep it from moving. It's got to be very precise. And then once they do it, nobody trusts it because storms can come and move it or tides, or it could drag on the bottom. So they set up watches, and they're constantly constantly checking their position to see if they're dragging. But God says, my anchor I have for you, the hope of Christ, the hope of the Emmanuel, when I come in and, and in your midst, I'm going to drop that anchor for you, and you do not have to check your position. Because I'm going to make sure that my anchor, my promises do not move. You just need to make sure you're holding on to that anchor chain, which is Christ. How cool is that? It is sure and steadfast. I love this passage. Setting down an anchor, making sure there's no slippage. It's reliable, it's firm, it's unshifting. So think about maybe a difficult time you've been through. Or a difficult time or something coming up you have a little bit of anxiety about. Imagine in that moment of your, the greatest anxiety you could think about, you turned and looked and you saw something like Nechizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, a priest of the Most High God physically sitting there with you, representing God to you. Would that change your, your anxiety level? Would that make you feel a little bit more comfort and peace and no matter how this plays out, Your anchor of your soul is physically there with you? Abraham got to see this. Different characters throughout the Bible get to see this. Jesus came on the scene as Emmanuel God was, as the babe in the manger, to be that God wrapped in flesh for you, to be there in that moment. Imagine what it would be like to recognize that. This happened to one character I want to talk about. King Ahaz, if you go back and you look up King Ahaz, he's one of the descendants of, of David. Many generations later, King Ahaz wasn't a very good king. And When you read through Chronicles and Kings, it talks about, and this guy, this guy became king at this age, and he served these many years, and he did right, was in the sight of the Lord. King Ahaz it doesn't say that. It says he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, he's the king, and Isaiah is his prophet. Isaiah comes to him because God says, go talk to King Ahaz. Because King Ahaz is about to make a mistake. King Ahaz has this fear. He has this anxiety, that he's about, about to be conquered. And there's these two powerful kings from the north. And instead of, instead of facing them in battle, King Ahaz up, comes up with this plan. He says, you know, I'm not going to face them in battle. I'm just going to connect with them. I'm going I'm to partner with them. And maybe they won't, they won't take me out. And God says, hey, King Ahaz, won't you trust me? Because here's what's going to happen, Ahaz. Eventually, those two kings, within a very short period of time, they're not very strong, they're going to be wiped away. So your fear, your fear of them shouldn't be there. And you shouldn't make a pact with them. You should make one with me. Return to me. And he says, and here's, here's the promise. Here's the promise, Ahaz, that this is going to come to happen, that these guys who you think are going to conquer you is not going to happen. Here's the promise. And he says in Isaiah 7:14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this plays out in in Ahaz's life a little bit, as you read on. But 750 years later, a tax collector, a Jewish tax collector, uses this, the apostle Matthew quotes this verse and he quotes it to joseph the man betrothed to mary who's now pregnant and he's looking to put her away divorce her quietly they weren't married yet but she had this child and matthew says that an angel comes to him and says hey remember ahaz joseph Remember the plans he had, and God wanted you, Jesus, to trust in his hope, to trust in him. And he quotes, Behold a virgin shall conceive a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. John picks this up in the first chapter. And he says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He, the Word, was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without without Him was not anything made that was made. And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The hope of Christmas, the hope of the Christ child, is the light of the world. So we light... The candle, the first candle of the Advent season, is we look to the light that comes into the world in the Christ child. The light reminds us that the light will overcome the darkness. And we look to the the future of when Christ will come again. We use the light to ask us to illuminate the way. Remember Christ in his birth. We look forward to his future because as John preached last week, we're in that in-between section. He's already come. The Emmanuel is here, but it's not completely fulfilled yet. And it will come. So let's just take a quick moment and pray for the hope and the light of the world. Father, we thank you for the words that John continues. And you, you inspired him to write. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory the glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Father, we praise you for this light. We thank you for it. Help us to recognize the significance of the hope of the Christ child. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Now, that would be, a, as I said in earlier service, that would be a great place to end the sermon, wouldn't it? The beauty of that. But we haven't finished our text because there's so much more. It's one thing for God to come and encourage us in, in, our, in our difficult times and the things we, we experience as humans. But what about the rest of eternity? That's what the writer of Hebrews gets to. So let's go back to Hebrews 19. Let's look at verse 9, or 6 19, the second part of the verse. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus enters into, takes this, the hope that it is Jesus that God has placed before us. Not only does he encourage us and he's there with us and he gives us that sure and steadfast anchor of our soul. But again, going back to the Old Testament, where God said to Moses, build me, a, build me a tabernacle, a tent, that I may come live in your midst. There's the God with us. And then once a year, in the Jewish tradition, the high priest, and only the high priest, went back behind that curtain once a year to make atonement for sins for the nation. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, that high priest is Christ, going behind that curtain for you. And that is the hope the guaranteed expectation of which we we rely upon. Paul writes it this way. Let's bring up the Colossians slide. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, I think if we're honest, that's a little bit of us at all times. But you who are once alienated, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's Paul's way of saying Jesus took your sin, dealt with it, and he entered into that holy of holies. and He took that anchor, which is him, and he put it on that mercy seat, and you are tied to that anchor. You are connected to God in his presence through Christ our Lord. So I'll finish with a little bit of a a chronology of the story of where we're at. 4,100 years ago, God promised Abraham to make him a great family, a great nation, and through him all the earth would be blessed. And he promised this to, to Isaac and Jacob to pass this on into that lineage. About 600 years later, Moses comes on the scene and God says, Moses, I'm calling you because I'm going to rescue my people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt and I'm going to redeem you into the promised land and I promise to Abraham. And that's when he said, build me this tabernacle that I may be from Exodus. Dwell in your midst. There's Emmanuel dwelling with them. 3,000 years ago, God promised David that his son, David's son, from his lineage, would sit on the throne forever. And God's steadfast love would never depart from him. Now they thought they would be a biological son of David. But it's in the lineage of Judah, where Christ comes from, David's son. And he is the son, the hope, that will sit on the throne forever. 2,700 years ago, the prophet Micah says, a ruler of Israel, one from ancient of days come from Bethlehem. Jeremiah, I talked about it, said in his great new covenant, I will be their God and they shall be my people and I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Through Christ he remembers our sin no more. The same time Zephaniah wrote, the Lord your God is in your midst, Emmanuel, a mighty one who will save and he will quiet you with his love sure and steadfast anchor of your soul, quieting you with his love. 2,400 years ago, while Socrates was teaching Plato, the prophet Malachi wrote about a coming Elijah. A coming Elijah that will bring families together. He will repair and redeem for the preparation of the day of the Lord. This is fulfilled in John the Baptist, preparing preparing the way for Christ. And after that, 400 years of quietness. Think about 400 years ago, we didn't even have a nation in America. 400 years ago, our forefathers and foremothers were either somewhere in Europe or England. For 400 years, the the Israelites were waiting for the son of David to take the throne. And they find themselves not hearing from God. And it wasn't, he wasn't working, he just wasn't speaking until the right time at the right place of at his, at his anointing that the babe in the manger would come. And in that time, think about the culture there. They are being oppressed, they're invaded, they're occupied by Rome, one of the most powerful nations in history. And they're living under a, a, still a, a Hebrew king, but he's a puppet government. And they're corrupt, and they're worshiping, and they're forced to worship in a system that's become so ritualistic that it's all about what you do. It's not about what God does. It's what you do. And This was their life. And at that point, the light of the world, their hope, enters onto the stage. It was a high-water mark for difficulty. The Word became Flesh. Emmanuel. Two thousand years after the promise of Abraham, the hope for the nations arrives in Micah's Bethlehem. The, he is here. The day of the Lord is here. Now, two thousand one hundred years later, two thousand, yeah, almost twenty one hundred years later, close enough. full a long time. We're waiting. We're still waiting but we're not without hope because we, we can now see we have a greater view of Scripture than they had. And we can see the light of the world has come into us. So the question I have for you today, to wrap up, is Jesus your Emmanuel? Is he the anchor of your soul? Do you see him as the hope that it's there to bring heaven and earth together into your heart? Which is something you can grasp a hold of and trust, an anchor that does not move. It's fixed and firm on the promises of God. And God cannot lie. So it's there. Do you accept that? If so, how can this Christmas season, this Advent as we're working up to Christmas, how could this be different for you? How could you connect into this anchor of your soul a little more intimately this, this season? Just challenge you to think how you can do that. Is He truly your steadfast? And sure anchor. And if he's not, if you're still seeking him, I encourage you to seek him while while he can be found. Because he will come back in a day we do not know the time or the hour. Today is the day of salvation, scriptures say. Trust in this sure and steadfast anchor of your soul that is unmovable based on on the promises and character and nature of a one true holy God who created the universe and everything in it. Today is a day of salvation. Let us pray.